You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Genesis, we'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, and chapter 2, verses 5 through 17. Beginning Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every green plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for Yahweh God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The Bedellium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the river Euphrates. Yahweh God took the man put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy Father, You are the Almighty Creator and Lord of all things. And Your rule and reign is good, benevolent, full of kindness, 
an undeserved blessing. And we, all of us, stand as covenant breakers before you, having proved that Adam represented us fairly, without fault. Again and again we make that plain. And we are deserving of nothing but your condemnation. Nothing but death. And we come to you today, our only plea being Christ. In whom we are your people, a new humanity. And we plea that you would conform us more and more to His image by Your Word today. Send Your Spirit and power. Make plain Your truth and glorify His name. In Him we pray. Amen. In his great work, The City of God, Augustine wrote, Now there are many things called God's covenants, besides those two great ones, the old and the new, which anyone who pleases may read and know. For the first covenant, which was made with the first man, is just this, that in the day ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. Although it is plain that there are many things in the Scriptures we can refer to as God's covenants, still, when we read Genesis 1 and 2, as the word covenant is completely absent from the text, may we call what we see here a covenant. What we're looking at has many names. It's been called the covenant of works, the covenant of creation, uh, the covenant of nature, the Adamic covenant, the Edenic covenant, the covenant of life even. Never mind how we designate it, should we designate it at all as a covenant is the first question. Should we simply speak of it as the Adamic administration, as that stalwart of the Reformed faith, John Murray, referred to it? He'd he'd preferred not to refer to this as a covenant. Although the word covenant isn't used, neither is it used in the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7 never uses the word covenant in that context. But David refers to what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 7 as a covenant in Psalm 89. Well, the writer of Psalm 89, the author is not attributed. Psalm 89 refers to that instance as a covenant. Psalm 132 does. Jeremiah 33 also all refer to that instance that we see in 2 Samuel 7 as a covenant. So the absence of the word alone isn't, uh, isn't conclusive. And so we finally find ourselves at a place where in the series on the covenants, we have to actually define what a covenant is. We need a definition to see if what we're looking at today is a covenant. Tom Schreiner, fine professor at Southern Seminary, defines a covenant as a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. Or John T. Rhodes, a British Presbyterian, gives yet a shorter definition. This one you... you, can easily jot down and remember. A covenant is a conditional promise. Now, if that's a bit too vague, he offers this expansion. A covenant is an agreement between God and human beings where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and threatens curses if the conditions are broken. Or Baptist pastor Earl Blackburn writes, a divine covenant denotes a solemn arrangement divinely imposed 
which places binding obligations on the parties of the covenant. You begin to see some common elements with these definitions. They're good. They're all good. But I think my favorite one is O. Palmer Robertson's definition. A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Now, that definition has faced some technical criticism. And I think it's fair, but by bond in blood, what he's getting at is it's simply a serious life and death kind of relationship. And these are all very helpful. But rather than leaning heavily on some extra biblical definition, no matter how faithful that definition is to the text, what I think would serve you far better is for you to have a kind of instinct from just having read and studied the covenants so thoroughly that you know a covenant whenever you're dealing with one. To have a kind of instinct. And that's part of what I hope this series on the covenants develops in you. And if you've been a, study, a student of the Bible for any time, if you've done any kind of study of the covenants, then I think you'll recognize, and this will become plain as we proceed along, but I think you'll recognize the following elements as being uh, noteworthy to covenants. They, they're not always every one of them in every particular covenant, but they are, they are notable. They're, they're there most of the time. So first is that covenants involve promises, oaths, vows, Second, they are cut. Whenever you read that God made a covenant with Abraham, more literally the translation would be God cut a covenant. That even comes over into our English idiom whenever we'll talk about cutting a deal. We don't have any idea of the etymology, the roots of that kind of language, but this is where it stands from. Covenants are cut, meaning that blood sacrifices are often involved in ratifying those covenants. And then related to those sacrifices, very frequently, you have covenant meals or feasts. And most of the covenants have a sign signifying, testifying to the covenant. But the most essential factor in the covenants is that they define the relationship. And so though you may not be, as you're reading through the Bible, able to define precisely what a covenant is, you realize that covenants are that which define the relationship. It's become cliche in Christianity to say that Christianity is not about religion, it's about a relationship. Yes, but what kind of relationship is it? It's a covenantal one. It's a covenantal one with God Almighty, ergo, yes, Christianity is all about a relationship, but it is a religious relationship, a covenantal relationship. It's a serious one, not one lightly entered into. And so with these elements in hand, we can ask again, is what we have here a covenant? I'd like to give three answers as to why I believe it is. The first being that many of these elements that we just rehearsed, they're present here. But second and more important are the explicit textual proofs that we have in Scripture. So in Hosea 6-7 we read, speaking about the infidelity of both the northern and southern kingdoms, Israel and Judah, that like Adam, 
They, Israel and Judah, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So the way that Israel disobeyed God is the same way Adam disobeyed God. And the way that happened is covenantally. They broke covenant. Now, some will argue that Adam there, it is the same Hebrew word for man. And so they'll argue, well, it should have just simply been translated man in that instance. And the question then is, well, when did man as an entire entity and group break covenant? They did it in their federal representative, Adam, in the garden. Others will say, well, Adam refers, I think, to the place, Adam. The place that's referred to just one time in Scripture, in Joshua 3.16, in which there's no context around that particular instance of covenant infidelity. Rather, just the opposite, it is that place that would speak, if anything, to covenant faithfulness. I don't think that's a satisfying interpretation. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Most of the time, whenever covenants are initiated, it uses that language of them being made, being cut. And whenever we look at the Noahic covenant, though, it speaks of God establishing a covenant with Noah. And the word used there for establishing, not every time, but frequently, whenever you see that word establish, instead of a covenant being made, it being established, it has the idea of a covenant that was already in existence, being renewed. And so, looking at the Noahic covenant, and seeing that it says that God didn't cut a covenant with Noah, He he, he established a covenant with Noah, and seeing all the imagery from Genesis 1 and 2 that gets uh, recycled in the Noahic covenant, understanding all of that is is really powerful in understanding the next two texts I'm going to read. So whether or not these two texts are referring to the Noahic covenant or the Adamic covenant, it doesn't matter because if it refers to the Noahic covenant, it has implications, I believe, for the Adamic covenant. So in Isaiah 24, 5, we read, "...the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, Broken the everlasting covenant. Or Jeremiah 33, 21. Thus says Yahweh, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that night and day will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. And then third, and the real clincher argument for me, that what we're looking at is indeed a covenant here is that we need to read this passage in light of the Christ who fulfills all the Scriptures, who fulfills all the covenants, the Christ of the New Covenant. And whenever we look at this passage in that light, we realize that as we fell in Adam, so we are redeemed in Christ. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 5. We'll go into Romans 5 a bit later on. But ours was a covenantal fall, and ours is a covenantal redemption. Now, as we approach our text, we need to realize that we're looking at the same thing from two different perspectives or angles. These two accounts that we have here in Genesis 1 and 2 are not contradictory, they're complementary. We have two different camera angles looking at the same thing. And so the first camera in chapter 1 is a 
it begins close in and zooms out to take in this mountain scene, if you will, until you arrive at the apex of God's creation work in making man in His own image. And the second camera zooms in on that apex to then consider creation from the perspective of man. Not as though we're looking at it through his eyes, but we're looking at it from from the vantage point of here we are looking at man and then considering creation in relation to him. So we begin with this camera that has zoomed out progressively. Day one, day two, day three. We're getting more and more of the picture and we arrive at the climactic work of God in creation, man. And though I, I, I say that camera one considers man as the apex, camera two, man is this focal point, in each of these chapters, in all of the Bible, we are set up to understand this is a theocentric book. Creation is a theocentric act. It centers on God. Though I, we can say man is the apex of God's creative work, we need to understand that the, the apex of God, of the Bible altogether, the apex of creation, is the one who is Lord over it all. I'm afraid that these words about God's creative word are just too familiar to us. God said, let there be and there was. Six times the inspired commentary is, and it was so. Let there be, and it was so. In chapter 1, we are looking at the Creator and His creation. And even so, when we arrive at day 6, we sense that something is different at this point. Because we transition from let there be to let us make. And theologians have long wrestled with what to make of this let us make. What is this us? And some have speculated is that God is addressing the heavenly court, the angels. But we're not made in the image of angels. Others have said He's addressing the earth. I just don't find that a satisfying answer uh, to this deliberation that's happening here. The, the better interpretations are that this represents a plural, a plural of majesty. You'll sometimes read in literature, of, or even today, of kings, rulers, referring to themselves as we. It's the majestic we. So it's a plural of majesty, or it's a plural of fullness, or a plural of deliberation. I think the ancient Hebrew would have likely saw the Plural of deliberation. I think all those plurals will fit as, as explaining what, what is happening with this us. But we, in light of Christ, understand more fully what deliberation within the Godhead involves. This is a Trinitarian deliberation. Father, Son, and Spirit, let us make man in our own image. Just as Moses did not know the full implications for how all the sacrifices spoke and testified to Christ, neither did he understand that the Trinity uh, was being uh, spoken of in some, some shadowy kind of way here. But that does not mean it's in the text. Warfield put it this way, The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clear view much of what was in it but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation. And here and there, 
almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not only corrected by the fuller revelation that follows it, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. See, with every other act, God simply speaks. But at this point, we have this divine deliberation of our triune God. Let us make man in our own image as we come to God's climactic act of creation. It is because our God is such a big deal that man is such a big deal as he's made in his image and likeness. Francis Schaeffer often spoke of the creator-creation distinctive. We would write creator, hard, bold, black line, creation underneath it. It is a solid, impermeable line. It's not a dotted line. There is none like God. He is in a category and class all by Himself. When categorizing all that is, you only have one entity that falls into the category of Creator and everything else into the category of creation. There is none like Him, and yet... Whenever we look at God's creation, there's one part of God's creation that stands out distinctly from everything else in creation. And the reason is because that one part of creation that stands out is made in the image of the one who absolutely, in total, perfectly, and completely stands out and above and transcends all creation. It's because we're made in the image of God that man is the climactic act of God in creation. What does it mean that man is made in the image of God? The imago dei, we call it. The Bible, you notice, doesn't labor to tell us what the image of God consists in. And while we know that God is spirit, He doesn't have a body, I think the advanced answer is then everything that is man in in His being and existence outside of that which uh, his, would involve his body, every, personality, his, his rationality, everything about him in, the, in these kind of ways, that is in the image of God. But, but the Scriptures are not keen to elaborate on what it consists in. They're, they want to tell us what the consequences, the significance of this is. What it is, two things are made plain in our text. Being in the image of God, man has dominion, and he's relational. Man under the sovereign almighty is given dominion as a vassal king over all creation, verse 26. To be a man is to be a king. Because to be a man is to be made in the image of God Almighty, the sovereign Lord of all creation. The lowest man on earth sits atop creation as a king. There is dignity, there's value and worth to his existence above everything else that is in creation simply by being a man made in the image of God. To be a man is a high calling. And being in the image of God, man is relational. You see God saying, let us make man in our own image. And then from man, He takes from man and makes woman. And the two then are to join together and become one flesh in marriage. 
One theologian comments, it's often said that the Bible represents God anthropomorphically as a human being, and that's true. He goes on, more accurately, a human being is theomorphic, made like God so that God can communicate himself to people. It's no strike that the Bible uses anthropomorphic language to explain to us who God is because we're made in the image of God to communicate God. Michael Horton says, we are always analogies of God. This is a helpful corrective from going too far with this. We're always analogies of God, not at any point identical. He goes on to explain that God in every respect is not only quantitatively greater than we are, He is qualitatively in a different class altogether. He alone is God. And yet again, it is the very transcendence of God that there is none like Him that speaks to the high honor of our being made in His likeness. We are not like God. We're not gods. But we are like God, analogies of God. And to add to this honor, God then blesses man. Verse 28, He blessed them. And you have to see that this blessing serves as a heading for the commands and the provisions of this covenant that follow in verses 29 through 30. Sometimes we'll look at this covenant here and we'll think that God, that man got a rough deal. It was a tough bargain. Sometimes we don't help this because we refer to this covenant. Most often, the terminology uses that this is a covenant of works as set over in contrast against the covenant of grace. And so we can feel, we may not profess it, but we can feel as though the covenant of works was void of any goodness and kindness and grace. R.C. Sproul obliterates this idea, writing, The names of the two covenants, one of works and one of grace, may be misleading. The names may give the idea that the original covenant lacks any element of grace, that God creates us and gives us the gift of life is already an act of grace. God was under no obligation to create anyone. Once created, we had no claim on God to enter into a covenant with us. God's promises of life on the condition of obedience has its origin in His grace. Even in the covenant of works, the reward promised for obedience is de pacto. De pacto. It's, it's an arrangement not where we earn something by, by the very value of our obedience. It's just a covenantal arrangement. It's a reward that far exceeds what we put into it. The reward is given not because of the works themselves due to their intrinsic value, impose, uh, but uh, they impose... Um, the word, reward given impose an obligation on God to reward them, not because of this intrinsic value, but because God in His grace offered such a reward as part of an agreement. Theoretically, God could have justly and righteously imposed an obligation on His creatures to obey His law without any promise of reward whatsoever. It is the creature's intrinsic duty to obey His Creator, with or without the prospect of reward. And yet I would say, rather than speak of the grace that's involved in the covenant of works, I prefer the term covenant of creation, rather than speak of the grace that's involved therein, I think it best just to say that the covenant of creation was a blessed covenant. It was a good covenant, full of the benevolence and kindness and goodness of God. It, it wasn't this thing that sat heavy on man's shoulders as a burden. It was a privilege and a provision 
and a blessing that lifted and elevated him high. You can see this in the commands themselves. Just read them in light of this way of thinking. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. These are not hard commands. By multiplying, man is spreading the image of God over the earth. And thus, extending God's rule through His vassal kings over the earth. And this all helps you understand the backdrop getting ahead of myself a bit, but the backdrop that you have in Genesis 2, the way that creation is described there as being barren and void because God had not yet made man. The idea is that man is meant to spread over the earth and bring the rule and dominion of God to the earth as a whole and thus it be fruitful. Man is a gardener king. He has the high honor and acting as such, to image forth His blessed sovereign. These commands are not a burden, they are a blessing. And for this task, God says that He's given man every plant and every tree that's good for food. God does not bid us make bricks without straw. God does not muzzle the ox. He says, to subdue the earth, I give you the earth. And, verse 30, it was so. This covenant is sovereignly administered. Covenants are not contracts. We don't come to the bargaining table and there's some kind of give and take. The divine covenants are divinely imposed and God looks down on all creation. He looks down on all creation not simply as it is on its face value. He looks down on this creation with man as the apex of his creative work. He looks down on creation with man as his vassal king made in his image to rule and have dominion. And he looks down on that scenario as a whole and he says, it is very good. When you read the covenant of creation, this is what I want you to sense is this, is this was so good and pristine. There's no raw deal. It's full of blessedness and goodness and kindness. And then in chapter 2, look at it from another angle. Instead of building up to this apex on day 6, we view creation from the perspective of, of man in relation to creation. We zoom in and consider it from this vantage point. And this helps you deal with any kind of seeming disparity you may feel when you look at verses 5 and 6. No bush of the field was yet in the land. No small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for Yahweh had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground. What's happening? Two ways that I think this is dealt with best. My, the, the one I, I really still don't like that much is that some have speculated that we need to read this in light of Genesis 3, 16 and 17 and 18, light of the curse that happens there. There is a correspondence. It's the same word that's used for plant. There was no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. The idea of that word plant, there is a cultivated plant. It's the same plant that's referred to that Adam will eat thereof after the curse. He'll, he'll cultivate these by the sweat of his brow. So there's a correspondence there, and so then they'll say, well, bush of the field corresponds then to those thorns and thistles that happen after the curse. These things are not yet because the fall has not yet happened. I'm not really satisfied by that answer. It works better than a lot of the other bad answers, though. The one I think is most satisfying, most faithful to the text, 
is that day six is being anticipated in light of the state of the earth from day two. What you have described on day two, the earth is, is just, you have land distinct from the waters. And why do we advance along to what we see described in day six? And the reason is what God is going to do in man. And man is going to exist so that the earth does not remain in that kind of barren state that you see described on day two. Man is formed to work and keep this garden and extend his work that he's given there to all creation. And so I think these two, am- these two camera angles harmonize in the story that they're telling, bringing us to focus on man, seeing man at this, this apex of God's creative work. And now we see specifically how God created man. He formed him from the dust. We see God in chapter 1, this divine Trinitarian deliberation. And in chapter 2, we see God the potter putting his hands into the earth. Anthropomorphic language, yes, but as it were, forming man. There are two times we could say God in his dealings with creation gets dirty. Whenever he works to make man in his own image, and then not figuratively at all, but literally, when he works to remake man in the image of his son. Man formed from the earth, but then he becomes a living creature as God breathes into him the breath of life. You see once again how man is distinct from all creation. Now all life is from God above, but the very life man has, as it were, is from above. With the rest of creation, man just speaks, and it is, and there's life. But with man, he's formed from the creation. He's he's part of it, and yet his life comes from above as God comes down and breathes into him the breath of life. This is divine life, the life of an image bearer. Man is, as Michael Horton put it, the marvel of ensouled dust. And then verse 8, God plants a garden. Into this garden, he puts man. And in this garden, our our, our eyes are then directed to, to trees in particular. Not anything else, but to trees in particular in verse 9. And that these trees are pleasant to the sight, they're good for food. And then we zoom in further, and two trees in particular are spoken of. And in them we see both God's provision in these trees, both His provision and His prohibition. But before that's made clear to us, a lot of time is spent telling us about this river that flows out of Eden to water this garden that's in Eden. Eden's a bigger geographical location. This water flows out of Eden to water this garden that's in Eden, and there at that garden it divides and becomes four rivers. Why all this time? Well, one, it takes us back again to verse 5. And now we're told how this garden was watered in verse 10. See, it's being considered from the vantage point of man. This is how it's watered, and man's put there to work and to keep it. So it's fruitful. But also these rivers turn our eyes eastward to the Euphrates and Tigris that were well known. Even, it's even identified. This is the Tigris that you know of associated with Assyria. They turn our eyes eastward, and this would have been especially meaningful to the original audience. 
I think too often, have you ever had this kind of experience? I think I default into it. That we can think of the events of Genesis as, though, as, the, as far as they're given, as though there was a, this live ticker tape that's just putting out divine revelation. As though the revelation that we're reading corresponded in time to the events themselves. But that's not the context in which these words were originally read and understood. The context for these words is the Exodus. And what are they doing? They're journeying eastward towards these very rivers. Now they don't arrive at those ultimately, but they're journeying towards them, towards a land that's said to be flowing with milk and honey a kind of re-picturing of Eden. They're journeying there and they're crossing the Red Sea and they're crossing the Jordan to get there. Further, as you look at this garden itself, you realize it's a kind of temple garden. Though man is put there, it's man's home. In Genesis 13.10, in the book of Isaiah, this garden is referred to as the Garden of Yahweh. In Ezekiel, it's referred to as the Garden of God. There's a peculiar instance when it's referred to in that way in Ezekiel 28, where it's speaking of the king of Tyre, and it's clear that the king of Tyre is being spoken of in light of an archetype, uh, uh, an antitype, and that type most uh, conservative commentators will say is Satan. It's referring to this king of garden, and it's, uh, this king of Tyre, and it says, You were a guardian cherub in Eden, in the garden. And it says that every precious stone was your covering. And and recall that the original audience is seeing a tent erected with cherubim on the inside of those curtains of the tabernacle. And inside the most holy place on the Ark of the Covenant sits the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat you have two cherubim, not chubby babies, but frightening angelic creatures. Guarding the mercy seat. And recall that whenever man sinned, you see a garden cherub there to keep man out. And so you have all this imagery that's rehearsed later on in in relation to the tabernacle that, that you can then now see the original audience would be seeing. What's with these rivers and why describe these rivers into in relation to gold and precious stones? It all evokes. This picture of the temple or a tabernacle, a holy place where God meets with man. And it's also striking how evocative this would have been to the original audience. Whenever you're reading of the Creator in chapter 1, he's referred to again and again as God. But when you come to chapter 2, the covenant name of God is used. He is Yahweh God. It's after this description that God lays down the covenant terms in ways that would be real familiar to these Israelites sitting at Sinai, hearing God say, you shall and you shall not. And if you violate the terms of the covenant, here are these curses. But if you keep the terms of the covenant, here are these blessings. Man is commanded to work and keep the garden. Again, taking us back to chapter 5 and why we proceed along to day 6 in the creation of man. And you have this singular negative command with a promised curse for disobedience in verse 17. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But if you only see negative here and no positive, if you only see negative in this negative command, 
It's because the serpent's lies are still ringing in our ears. Man has long missed the forest for the tree. There is a mountain of provision here and a pebble of prohibition. As one pastor put it, there is a tree of no surrounded by a garden of yes, a forest of yes. But even in our sober moments, whenever we realize that God is as good to us in what He prohibits as in what He permits, even in those sober moments, have you not ever asked, why? Why the tree? Why this particular command? First, we need to realize as we approach this question, that the work of the law was written into Adam. It would have been as wrong for Adam to murder or to lie or to worship the creation instead of the creator at this point as it would be to eat of this tree. But when we look at all those commands that we see proceed from the very character and being of God, I think that Adam made in the image of God would think disobeying one of those commands, it, it's just written into the, him in the way things are. The God he knows, why would he murder? What good could come of that? But we have instead what appears to be just simply an arbitrary law, what we call positive law, a just-because-God-said-so law that really proves, though Adam has dominion, He is under dominion. It says, who is Adam's covenant Lord? Burkhoff proves very insightful here. In order that the test of Adam might be a test of pure obedience, God deemed it necessary to add to the commandments of which Adam received the naturalness and reasonableness, a commandment which was in a certain sense arbitrary and indifferent. Thus the demands of the law were, so to say, concentrated on a single point. The great question that had to be settled was whether man would obey God implicitly or follow the guidance of his own judgment. And should he eat, he was promised that on that day he would surely die, or more literally the translation would be, dying you will die. And certainly he died unto a prolonged dying death whenever he ate. See, chapter 3 is to be read covenantally. It was an attack by the serpent on the covenant. And it was a betrayal of the covenant by man. Whenever I told you that part of what our aim was was for you to start reading the Bible with covenant as the lens through which you see the events of God and redeeming man unfolding. It's not only the case there. As you look out at the world, I want you to see it covenantally. All the sin that you see is a covenant breaking, a covenantal disobedience piled on top of covenant disobedience. The curse under which you see the earth groaning and man afflicted, is a covenantal curse that comes to us by Adam's disobedience. Sinful man relates to God as a covenant breaker in Adam. And yet we ask, in light of that, but what if? 
What if Adam had not disobeyed? What were the covenant terms for obedience? And many have speculated that he would have then been granted access to the tree of life after some probationary period. And as the tree of life appears throughout Scripture from this point forward, it gives us some grounds to think that that would be the case. But I think this is, this is really what we need to see. Man was already blessed. He already enjoyed this blessed state. And with that, communion with God. And throughout Proverbs... The path of righteousness, wisdom, and living in the fear of Yahweh are constantly throughout Proverbs referred to as a tree of life. Adam already enjoyed blessedness in life. I think it best to understand that covenant faithfulness to the covenant of creation was not so much about what Adam stood to gain. He was already in a blessed state. It was about what he stood to lose if he disobeyed. So I think we're in a place now where we can ask the question, what was the covenant of creation? The Westminster Confession answers, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity posterity, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. And that covenant is still in effect. Not holding out any hope of life, but condemning every one of us. When God makes a covenant, it's for keeps. He doesn't speak flippantly. He doesn't lightly enter into some contract and then back out. When He makes a covenant, it's forever. Only to be um, abolished in any way by being fulfilled in a greater sense by another covenant, as we'll see as we proceed along. Romans makes this clear. The covenantal nature and enduring nature of what's happened in Romans 5. When it tells us that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men, Romans 5.12. It tells us that one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Romans 5.18. How is it that that one sin leads to all of us being condemned? Because those are the covenantal terms. By Adam's obedience, we were made sinners, Romans 5.19. And if you think those covenant terms are unfavorable, well then realize it's only upon such covenant terms that there's any hope for our salvation is that there could be a second Adam to represent us. And that's exactly what Romans 5 tells us, is that Adam was a type of the one who was to come, Christ. The second Adam, ahead of a new humanity, See, this is the real clincher for understanding the covenantal nature of of Genesis 1 and 2. As in Adam, so in Christ. As Adam was our covenantal head, now Christ is. As we were condemned in Adam, now we are counted righteous in Christ. Burkhoff, again, is very helpful. Basically, the covenant of grace is simply an execution of the original agreement By Christ. He undertook freely to carry out the will of God. He placed Himself under the law that He might redeem those that were under the law and were no more in a position to obtain life by their own fulfillment of the law. He came to do what Adam failed to do and did it in virtue of a covenant agreement. And if this is so, 
And the covenant of grace is, as far as Christ's concerned, simply the carrying out of the original agreement. It follows that the latter must also have been of the nature of a covenant. You are saved by the covenant of works. Saints, you're saved by works. They're just not your own. Jesus bore the curse for Adam and all of our law-breaking. He bore it in full. And He obeyed perfectly, rendering perfect righteousness unto God. With Adam, His obedience and the, what He would enjoy, there was this distant Far distant correlation between how much he served and what he would have been given. But with Christ, his work is of such absolute value to merit our salvation so that God would be unjust if he didn't count us just as we are in Christ. In Christ, we're in a better position than we ever could have been in Adam. So that we should never ask ourselves, oh, what if Adam had not sinned? No, God determined before the foundation of this world to bestow blessings better and only foreshadowed in the arrangement Adam made with Adam in the covenant of creation. In Christ, we're not simply made in the image of God. We're being conformed to the image of He who is the radiance of His glory. And we're told that one day when we see Him, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. In Adam, there was the possibility of falling. In Christ, there's the assurance that we never will. And as all things are now under Christ's feet, and we are in union with Him and said to be co-heirs with Christ. We are heirs of a new creation. And as we look at this new creation anticipated in Scripture, our eyes are drawn not to two trees, but to a single tree. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Does that not have a lot more significance now thinking of it in relation to what we've seen? This river that provides life as it parts and and brings this fruitfulness to this garden? The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle, where were the two trees planted? In the midst of the garden. This river's flowing Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. 
They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. They will have dominion in the high privilege, not just being made in the image of God, but being remade and conformed in glory to the image of Christ, to live far above, and yet an uh, 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 image of what we see, and just to live in the image of God, knowing and glorifying our Creator, our covenant Lord. I would plea with you, sinner. If you sense you are an Adam and without hope, to recognize that God has given a second Adam in the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfills this covenant and by His work If you will trust in His person, you will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. So throw yourself in faith and abandonment on the second Adam. Let's pray. Father, thank You that all that was promised to the first Adam was not lost for us, but that more is gained in the second Adam. And reflecting and seeing the story of Your redemption, I pray more clearly in this way, may we prize and treasure and cling and to Him and rejoice in Him and proclaim and tell of Him with greater clarity. Thank You for the exalted Christ in whom we are lifted to the high dignity being conformed to His image knowing that a new heaven and a new earth is promised where we will live with You forever. To You be all the glory and honor and praise for Christ. In His strong name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.